have PMS. <laughs> I can say whatever I want. Is that pre or post? I can never remember. Um, it, it's pre, but pre. it's okay. a lie because it's really during. And is that how you always say door? Nope, that's not how I always say that. <laughs> <laughs> is our before talk going to be about my PMS? Because that would be really special. <laughs> Okay, oh boy, it's the Doom to Fail podcast. I am very tired and Tim Dobbs, and with me here on this show is a lady who has never, ever had her hair cut, Catherine Coker. It's good to be here. It just grows that way, right? It's just, <laughs> yeah. It just stopped growing after a while. <laughs> yeah, it hit a point, and then it was like, well, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> Right. Okay, so a uh, special episode this week, special uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, and maybe uh, to some others, because someone left their heart there. Who who was that? I, uh, I believe that was a member of the Rat Pack. Was it? Uh, could or be. Mr. Who Sinatra? Knows? We got a, a special uh, beginning of a very exciting series for me. Is and all our, of us. Oh, yeah. Each, each and every one of us in our hearts. It's heart-themed. Um, <laughs> we'll be talking about, we're kicking off our American... Cities series. The heart of America's in U.S. cities. Yes, and this week we'll be talking about, there was a clue earlier, if you were listening, some foreshadowing, San Francisco. Um, and just to sort of uh, get us starting, I, I spoke with, that's right, I spoke with someone. We did some real serious journalism. Wow. Yeah, so I, I spoke with uh, Megan Corning, who is... Not only my girlfriend, but also a student of sort of the urban aesthetic and interested in the heart of the city. It's heart themed and lives in San Francisco. And so she actually went to a mayoral debate. I guess they're going to have a mayoral whatchamajig soon, you know, election. Those things. And, right? uh, yeah. yeah. And she, uh, she sort of, t- I spoke to her about what that experience was like. So we're just going to. Have a listen. So tonight, I went to a mayoral candidate forum here in San Francisco, and I believe it is called Parks to Streets, or Sidewalks to Streets, something of that nature. It was almost entirely about pedestrians and parks and bike lanes and public transit. In any case, there were uh, some very left-leaning candidates. Not so surprising, but my favorite uh, of all was definitely Perry Joan Baum. She's a Green Party candidate. A bit of background information for you listeners: This is the woman whose campaign slogan is "Tax the Rich." Duh. And so Megan was telling me that they were all asked the question: Do you support greater diversification of food trucks in Golden Gate Park? And they all went around and kind of went, eh, "Yeah, sure, yeah, why not?" But then Terry Joan Baum said. But then Terry said, absolutely not. Like, I do not support the food trucks in Golden Gate Park. I do not like their motors or their fumes, and they do not belong in the park. I They don't even have 
they don't they, there's not even anywhere to sit anywhere around them for the people who don't who don't want to eat while standing or like sitting on the ground it's not nice i i would be she said like i would fully support a kiosk of sorts like <laughs> food stands but not trucks she's wholeheartedly against them because it was defiling the nature of the park. Listen, we can talk kiosks, but trucks, no. <laughs> yeah. So, to sum up, I'm pro-kiosk, anti-truck. But those are the pressing topics that San Franciscans care about. Food trucks? <laughs> Will there be Indian food? <laughs> I must know. Listen, if we're not properly representing all 196 countries, then I don't know how we can call ourselves a liberal city. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do not want my children to grow up in a city like this that that only has most of Western Europe and South America. What will they know of the cuisine of the Middle East? So, everybody, big hand for Megan Corning. Okay. Um, our very first uh, interview guest. All right, so back in the studio now. Um, before we sort of jump right in, we do want to touch on a couple of things. Um, one of the things is that the San Francisco Bay Area is... It's, it's it's sort of a metropolitan area. There's lots of cities all around the Bay. It's a very dense area of California, and all those economies are really interdependent, and you move through them really quite a bit. Uh, but we just kind of we had to limit scope at some point, and you'll find out that we didn't limit the scope very much in this show. But uh, <laughs> one of the ways we've done so is to just talk about San Francisco and not really touch on the other parts of the Bay. But we might just kind of here and there, incidentally. Um, and the other thing I want to say is, don't blame me. That I didn't hit all the important things about the city. That I overlooked all this crazy stuff. Um, because... Believe me, he tried to keep it all in, and I wouldn't let him. <laughs> uh, come on, we're just doing a show here, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's doomed to fail, and let's get started. Act one: geography lesson. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Tim. Hey. So, what we're going to do here, just to kind of give you a sense of the geography of the region, and it's an interesting region geographically, um, we're going to go ahead and just build up, as though we were God, San Francisco from scratch. Because in right. some ways we are. <laughs> in a lot of limited ways, yeah. Let's. <laughs> so, alright, let's go. And we're here. So, we are here on the west coast of the United States, sort of that very left side of the map, and um, there's the Pacific Ocean, and it's kind of right there, and it's going... <laughs> yeah. And, uh... We're right here on the coast, and um, so if we go, uh, just seven miles inland, uh, let's just pick a number, right? Why not, yeah. And we're going to put a big, sort of oval-shaped bay right there. And that's the San Francisco Bay. So now we've got the Pacific Ocean, a strip, a thin strip of seven miles of land, and a big bay. And uh, let's put some fog over the bay, all right? And now the rest of us talking is going to have reverb, because that's what fog sounds like to me. <laughs> so, uh, this is a really mountainous area. And uh, the whole, in fact, the, the whole strip running between the Pacific Ocean and the bay, that, that little strip of land there, that has mountains going straight up. All right, we built some mountains. I mean, I would imagine that those mountains have something to do with the fog. Uh, yeah. 
they might be interrelated. Foreshadowing. Alright, so that's pretty good. But, uh, it, I mean, a bay, by definition, has an opening to the ocean, right? All right, good. I'm glad you agree. I agree. And uh, so let's let's put a little opening there. It's right about halfway between the north and south point of the the, the Oelish Bay, and that's actually that's called the Golden Gate, and that's sort of the inlet between the bay and the ocean. And uh, pretty good, right? So we've got this big bay, and it's it's actually surrounded on all sides by mountains, and it's got this little opening connecting to the Pacific Ocean. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. You you can picture it. I can picture it. Good. So, uh, just south of that Golden Gate, on that strip of land, sitting right there, that's a pretty good place to put, you know, something military, or a really good place for trade, actually, because it's got all that water around it, but it's got a protected bay, and pretty good, don't you think? I do think that. As it turns out, uh, in, in, in 1774, the Spanish actually thought so, too. To the time machine! <laughs> Act 2, A Trip Through Time. So, San Francisco was actually settled by the Spanish as part of Alta California, or Tall California, or Upper California, depending on how literal you want to be. I like Tall California. (laughs) So, way back in 1774, the Spanish king in Spain, he's sitting there and he says that, uh... Gosh, you know, that I've heard about this place. That really seems like a great place to have a fort. Go do that. Someone. I'm the king. Go do it. Someone did it. And they do. Yeah. Did he just send anyone he wanted to, or just military people, or the military people he didn't like, or... From the reading I've done, and, you know, I will admit I'm no scholar of San Francisco history, but Fair the reading enough. I've done, it, it seems that he picked two, uh, two fairly competent generals. Uh, one was based, I think, in Monterey, a little further south, California. Hey, I've been there. And the other one was... Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, and so I think he picked two pretty competent generals, and they actually had all this uh, problems getting there and putting the fort in. They actually missed each other a couple times. They had to go back and forth. Aww. And there was this weird, like, soap opera drama where one of the priests in Monterey really hated that general, so he, like, detained him there, because I guess it's something priests can do. He'd be like, no, God doesn't want you to go, and he made him stay there for six months. (laughs) I like that priest's attitude. Yeah. (laughs) I can do whatever I want. Anyway, they made it there eventually. And it it looks like they really like it. This guy, Father Pedro, is it Father Pedro Font? Yeah. Father Pedro, we'll call him, says something... To the tune of, from this tableland, one enjoys a most delicious view, for from there one observes a good part of the bay and its islands as far as the other side, and one has a a view of the ocean. In fact, although, as so far as I have traveled, I have seen very good places and beautiful lands, I have yet seen none that pleased me so much as this. I do believe that, if we could be populated, as in Europe, there would be nothing more pretty in the world. For this place has the best accommodations for founding it on it, a most beautiful city, inasmuch as the desirable facilities exist as well on the land as on the sea, the port being exceptional and capacious for dockyards, docks, and whatever would be wanted. At the distance of a gunshot, it has water for the maintenance of the population. And well, something I really like about this is that I just love the idea that people are probably still using this all the time in like tourist magazines and just everywhere they yeah, can, right? they're using this quote. <laughs> well, he's so beautifully positive. He's just like, and, and, and poetic at the same way. It's just like, 
Friends, Roman countrymen, <laughs> we have found the true utopia. And it's San Francisco. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Father Font, pretty happy, right? But as uh, things often go in North America, the U.S. would eventually take it over through war. And um, in the Mexican-American War, the Spanish lost it. Uh, so that's 1846. We've jumped ahead uh, about 75 years. Okay. Nothing interesting happened. No, no. But so, so 1846, right? Now the U.S. owns this thing, and they're like, whatever. This seems kind of cool, but you know, uh, all our all our infrastructure is on the East Coast. No one really lives there. Uh, yeah, sure. And then, boom, boom. 1849, gold rush, Sierra Nevada. Those mountains are very close. About uh, well, <laughs> it's about a two-hour drive, but I imagine it took quite a bit longer in those days. But from San Francisco, but because San Francisco had this great port, half the people who came to California looking for gold came in by coming through San Francisco. So this was a major throughway, and now the population explodes. That's, that's the story of West Coast cities, though. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, we have a graph of uh, we have a lot of. Oh, I'm gonna put so many pictures up on the blog about this. Oh, uh, I have a lot of really great ones, so you should check them all out. But we do have a pretty cool graph of you can see the way San Francisco. It was actually the major city in California for. Uh, right about until mid-century, 1900s, that. That. and then Los Angeles kind of started to take it over. I, you know, it sort of all fits in with the car boom and things like that. Right, so. right. And um, you can find all this at doomedtofailpodcast.blogspot.com. Yes, sir. So at this point now, we've got these, uh, everybody's coming in because they're on their way to go get gold. They're, you know, outdoorsmen, entrepreneurs, people who are excited about gold. And so... The city's reflecting this sort of practical industrial use. Um, this guy, uh, uh, Brecken or Brechen, uh, whatever, he, he writes, um, The city in the 1850s thus resembled an immense and treeless mining town on a coastal desert over which the sea winds blew monotonously during rainless summers. That's my, that's my uh, sound of purgatory. That's what that is. That sounds terrible, don't you think? <laughs> I wouldn't want to be there. Yeah. This is like the opposite of my friend Father Pedro. Right. Exactly. And this is this is sort of the beginning. We start to see that the marks that humanity has on this city it's it's extremely evident throughout it. Mm-hmm. You compare when the the Spanish first arrived towards when this population boom hits, and you can see this in, in, intense difference sure. just in the descriptions. Sure. Jump ahead. Okay. You ready? Let's do it. Whoop. Okay. It's 1904. San Francisco, it's a major port now. It's a financial center because all that gold has come through from the gold rush. And it's producing a bunch of goods. Uh, you got your Ghirardelli chocolate, your Levi jeans, and actually, I mean, it's, it's getting to be a real city. So it's the sort of grand, optimistic Victorian age. Um, Good stuff. So this guy, Daniel Burnham, is brought in to create a city plan. And actually, I guess he's actually pretty famous in urban planning circles. I, you know, I hadn't heard of him, but he's a big deal. And uh, the city plan is to be, quote, inspired by the Rome of the emperors and Renaissance poets, and above all, by Napoleon III's Paris. And uh, So you're right after that. You're right, clearly moving away from the practical. And I'm curious if you were being sarcastic when you said that. Because, I mean, I looked up... I don't know, it seemed like Napoleon III's Paris was a pretty reasonable design, design, but I don't know much about urban planning. Sure, sure. Uh, well, okay, so what I wrote about there, I'm, I'm talking sort of just about the grandiosity of it all. Oh, okay. Um, 
yeah. in the in the sort of uh, managers of the place, right? So instead of just like people are coming in and out and it's sort of semi-lawless and yeah, it's this treeless mining town where sort of capitalism is overtaking the whole thing. Instead, now we have this more governmental <laughs> approach where someone is talking about the beauty of it. Okay, I see. I see what you're getting at, but I, I do want to point out that. Um... I mean, Rome was renowned for its transportation system, which is a big part of urban planning. Like, all roads lead to Rome. And Napoleon III's Paris was no, was sort of characterized by move, clearing out slums and making things pretty and moving the working class neighborhoods by the factories. I guess in upper crust Paris, they thought, where you belong. And I actually visited Paris this summer really briefly, and I just wanted to point out that once I was on the BART system, and I was on, like, the Paris metro system, and they were really similar the way they worked. Really? Well, that's interesting. Certainly you'll allow that the Renaissance poet's inspiration is a little more... Oh, uh, I think it's very pretentious. I'm not arguing Yeah, there you go. And that's another thing, too, just about if you're moving the working class to the outside's neighborhoods, guess who lives in the middle? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's very grandiose and pretentious, so your point is well taken. Okay. Um... So what Daniel Burnham was uh, trying to do, he and he had actually sort of a young assistant, uh, Edward Bennett Jr. Good guy. So they devised this system of boulevards, like big, broad boulevards that would slash through San Francisco's the sort of grid they had already. And uh, the grids would converge on nodal points, kind of like a spider web. And the big one of those, the sort of crowning jewel of the city, was to be the Civic Center, mm-hmm. which would... Um, meet at the intersection of Market and Van Ness Ave, okay. which uh, are two very major streets in San Francisco right, now, right. if you've ever been there. Those are big. And uh, so this sort of reflects the sort of utopian approach. Sure. But then, it's April 18th, 1904. Mm-hmm. Earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the humanity! The humanity! <laughs> oh, no. Um, I can laugh about tragedy. Yeah, uh, it's in the past. Um, but this was actually a really crazy bad earthquake. So what what happened was it was already pretty bad, and they didn't really know a whole lot about earthquake engineering to keep them from having uh, you know everything falling down. So that was bad. But then also they had all these natural gas mains which ran through the city, oh. and those broke. Oh god! <laughs> which started a fire. Sure. And uh, before we um, go any further talking about this fire, why don't why don't we just sort of jump back in time? Remember remember Father Pedro Font? I do remember. At the distance of a gunshot, it has water for the maintenance of the population. Father Pedro Font, incorrect. The water supply was so short, and the firefighters, because they couldn't spray anything down, they actually had to demolish blocks of buildings just to create fire breaks. That's terrible. So between the earthquake and the fire breaks, 75% of the city was knocked down. Oh my god. Completely leveled. Poor, poor David Burnham. 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 You know what the worst part of it is? His last uh... name is Burnham. (laughs) (laughs) Burnham good. Um, That's not even the worst. No, the worst thing is uh, he handed in his plan on, I think it was the morning of April 18th, and like literally two hours later the earthquake happened. And so when they had to, of course, they had to rebuild, right. but they had to do so quickly that they basically ignored most of that plan. That's Little bits of it remain. That's so sad. But, yeah, it, it's really too bad for him. Um, but we still have, you know, the, the Civic Center is still there as a thought. 
uh, and you nice. still see a sort of grid and some some sort of slashing avenues, but not much. Uh, so this is this is the thing that really gets to me. So what happened was when they're rebuilding, well, the water company had been granted monopoly over the region, and so they took the opportunity to convince people that they had to take drastic measures to get a good water supply. They had to be completely dependable because it just does not rain very much. Right, right. And so in 1923, they convinced everybody. In my theory, it's out of fear, but they convinced everybody that they needed to dam up Hetch Hetchy, which is a valley in Yosemite National Park, which, if you were not aware, is one of our nation's greatest natural treasures. It's beautiful. Yeah, anytime you go and you see, like, these amazing pictures of, like, the Ansel Adams or something, those are in Yosemite Valley, which the Hetch Hetchy Valley is basically a twin of the Yosemite Valley, and uh, they decided it needed to be flooded. So they dammed it up and flooded the whole thing, and they built aqueducts to carry it the nearly 200 miles, it's 170 miles, all the way across the state, because Hetch Hetchy's in the eastern part, and San Francisco's in the western part. Um, and then that splits into four lines, and just to kind of give you a sense of how much water is being moved here, the smallest of those lines has a 5-foot diameter, and the largest has an 8-foot diameter. Wow. So... You could stand in any of them, and the eight-foot one, you know, you would have room to dance around. I would probably have room to dance around in the five-foot one, let's be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, your particular dance style, you're, you know, you know, on the ground a lot, doing a lot of spinning I'm and stuff. Dance. And, yeah. yeah, you do the worm. <laughs> so. But you can't, because it's filled with coursing water. They still use, that's their water supply today, and I, one of the things that I think is interesting is because of this weird system that got drawn up, the city of San Francisco actually owns Hetch Hetchy, so this, the city border limits of San Francisco are the city, and then 170 miles to the east, this little valley with <laughs> full of water. But so, this is our first example of these crazy engineering things that go on, mm-hmm. and the major engineering continues... All the way through the first half of the 20th century, we see all these big, big projects go up. Uh, really notable ones. We've got the Golden Gate Bridge. Sure. That one's pretty famous. Right. And its less famous cousin, the Bay Bridge, which is actually even longer. It's, it's also pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were erected in the 1930s, and those connect San Francisco with the north part of the Bay and also the East Bay. You know, Oakland and all that stuff. Construction noises. <laughs> hammer, <laughs> hammer, hammer. <laughs> Hey, sweetie! Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what I figure uh, construction workers do all day. Tonight, the part of the construction worker will be played by Tim Dobbs. <laughs> hey, you want some of this? Hey, I'm wearing a hard hat! Whoa. I'm wearing a hard hat. Classic pickup line. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't fit in on construction sites. <laughs> They're all working, and I'm just standing there doing a character. <laughs> Hey, we jumped ahead again. Oh. World War II. Ah. And the thing uh, about it, sort of a consistent through line we keep seeing is that San Francisco is a really good port. And so they use it as a launching point for ships, uh, people shipping out to the Pacific Theater. And this leads to another huge population increase because there's all this sort of military industry that comes up around it. Plus, um, soldiers coming home will stay there and stuff like that. And suddenly we see a shift. The beats. Beginnings of a counterculture. Well, okay, so the idea is that these beats sort of arise out of a reaction to World War II, which is, of course, a very, a very bloody war. I think with each increasing war, there, 
it has a bigger effect on the psyche of the culture. Um, except for maybe the Iraq War, which I guess everyone's just desensitized now or something. I Anyway. Too much Call of Duty? I <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, but anyway, so this is an even more publicized war than previous wars. So what happens is that it has a huge effect on the psyche of the culture, and people who come back from this war, for example... Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, Philip Whalen, Wally Hedrick, and Lou Welch, I believe his name is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So they come back and they're like, oh my god, the war, uh, I don't like this. Let's just do the opposite of this, whatever it is, which is where the beats arise from and this sort of counterculture to the war. Um, well, yeah, and so, I mean, my question was, oh, well, the war is everywhere. Why, why in San Francisco? Why did this city develop such a strong identity as a sort of center of counterculture? Right. And the war we already talked about, and so many people would be returning from, you know, because it's it's a port of embarkation, I guess. Debark, oh, yeah. um, that makes sense. I don't know boat talk, but... Um, uh, part of... Point of leaving. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, but, but in addition to all those things, I mean, so, you know, all this stuff arose in other places, New York City, wherever. But in addition to those, we also see, looking back in the past 50 years, from 1950... Uh, we see that this this huge monopolist water company is throwing its weight around. Uh, we've got all these giant engineering projects that are government sponsored. You know the Hetch Hetchy, all these bridges, and you know we already talked about the military presence. And so it seems like, in addition to the war, there's also just quite a bit of sort of the man here to react to. Right. You know, there's a lot of large scale projects with lots of money going through it, sure. and um, I don't know things with politicians pounding on the table saying we must build this. So. I think that makes sense. So that's our little theory about why uh, why it became a counterculture center. Yeah. And so the beats would lead into the hippies. And I do not care about the hippies. Okay. Do you care about the hippies? No. So uh, let's just fast forward. Okay. Uh, so today, San Francisco today. So all the industry, pretty much gone. It's moved to the East Bay. And that has a lot to do with rising property values because it's such a small little area that keeps getting denser and denser. Uh, it does, however, have most of its financial industry left. It was where Wells Fargo was uh, built, founded. Sure. Wells Fargo was founded, and also the Bank of America has uh, close ties to it because they financed. Um, I think they financed the Hetch Hetchy project actually uh, when it was called Bank of Italy. Okay. Did you know that it was Bank of Italy, and they're like, actually, let's just make it America. That makes that's better. <laughs> People will like I us had more. No idea. That's awesome. It was like an Italian guy who founded it, so it made sense. Right. And then he was like, I want to be making more money. So, <laughs> uh, Also, it's it's right near Silicon Valley, which uh, made it a major player in the tech boom. You know, Craigslist is founded there. Um, uh, CNET. CNET is a San Francisco company. Okay. There's a couple more. Yeah, sure. Pets.com. Pets.com. <laughs> I mean, the, the dot-com boom was huge in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. The uh, it, it got to the point where it was just too expensive to live there. You couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. And then when the crash happened, like the economy was ooh, scary. Yeah, and you had all this extra housing too, which it's. It, there are places where it's cheaper to live in San Francisco than it is to live sort of in the surrounding suburbs, which is this weird subversion of the standard narrative. It is a weird subversion. So, uh, yeah, and then finally, I don't think this is really a big surprise, but um, one of San Francisco's biggest industries is tourism. 
And I figure it just has a lot to do with all these big engineering things and, you know, all the cool stuff that Father Font pointed out to us early on. Fisherman's Wharf, uh, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's just sort of the sense of like, oh, man, look at all that stuff going on there. Yeah. <laughs> we should do that. I don't know. It's a destination. It's a nice place to visit, so I can't it, it, blame it. It has a lot of history and a lot of really yeah. interesting things. It, it's very visible history, too, which is the other thing. It, yeah, very much so. I mean, everything from like the cable car to Fisherman's Wharf to mm -hmm. um, the SF MoMA. I mean, you compare that to say, I don't know, let's say Atlanta, which is an older city. Casinos? <laughs> That's what I think of. I guess I would go see the Coke factory and uh, maybe go to a Braves game. I don't know. I wouldn't do either of those yeah. things, probably. Why wouldn't you go to the Coke factory? It's fun. I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't love plant <laughs> tours. <laughs> huh. Strange. <laughs> so I feel like we've gotten a good sense of the the things leading up to the now. I think so. Okay, good. You ready for Act 3? Let's do it. I know you're ready for Act 3 at home, but we got so in-depth on this one, we're going to split it into two parts. So check it out coming later this week, San Francisco Act 3 in which we take a trip through the city. I'm excited. I know you're excited. See you soon.